Today's episode is brought to you by our listeners. Thank you so much for your support this past year, and we hope you enjoy this special edition of High Crimes and History with me, Katie, and our lovely host, Trevor. You know, honestly, what I was thinking about was getting one of those um, kazoo sort of things. Uh, oh, the sounds, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. Do do. It's our first anniversary episode, which is kind of weird. So we're literally dropping this on November fourth, and uh, last year we did our first episode on November fifth. And um, so, honesty marks here. Did you really think that we'd get a whole year in? No, to be honest. Um... I wasn't really sure at all when we started the podcast if anybody would be interested in what we had to do, so... Yeah, that wasn't very nice. Uh, <laughs> what? I didn't! <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. No. Um, uh, you know what my favorite comment that we always get about the episode is? Is when people say that uh, it sounds professional, and I'm like, so our re- first recordings were with a bunch of blankets hanging everywhere. For that. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, we've come a long way. So right now what we're doing is we're recording uh, in a totally different place. So if it sounds a little bit different, uh, it's either that or my current cold. But um, so we're going to be fielding some of your listener questions that we've gotten throughout the months that we've been doing this podcast. Okay. The most requested question that we got was Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts? Starbucks if it's tea, Dunkin' Donuts if it's coffee. Would you agree? I don't know. I would say for tea, it's Tim Hortons. You're going to have to let everybody know who's not in the Midwest what a Tim Hortons is, because I just think it's some Canadian guy, I think. Okay, so Tim Hortons is basically like a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks. It's like a bakery shop that has coffee, tea, donuts, bagels, muffins, things like that. All the Canadians are literally going to be coming in and being like, you don't know what a Tim Hortons is, and it's going to be great. Timmy Ho's. (laughs) Don't tell me you actually guys call it that here, do you? I've heard it referred to as that, so yeah. (laughs) If you're from Canada, sorry, maybe that's not correct. Yeah. So we're recording here in a different environment, and uh, the the ambience is going to be a little bit more different. Uh, We couldn't record it. It's (laughs) ambiance. So is this where we address how I can't pronounce anything right, period? (laughs) Yeah. We can bring that up if you'd like. It's okay. The listeners are picking up enough as it is. But no, it's true. Um, I've never been able to pronounce anything correctly since I was a kid. Give us some of your really bad ones. You're better at that. I remember when I can't I, remember. As a kid, I remember uh, instead of being able to say tactics with the with that k sound, I always would say tactics. Well, I can't say the word aluminum. Alu- <laughs> I just said it. Usually I say aluminum. Yeah, yeah, but you really had to think through those syllables. Yeah, so. yeah, that's a hard one. It's a lot harder than it sounds like on mic, uh, especially when, in fact, there's a listener question about this. Somebody asked, uh, some context uh, on this question. Uh, I post quite often on Reddit, and this question came up from a post about Ferdinand Magellan, the explorer who circumnavigated the world, and I thought it could actually kind of <laughs> talk about this fact of pronunciation. Uh, The poster said, this is incredible. Thank you for sharing. Do you know why his name is translated, in quotation marks, to a somewhat English version of his real name? Oftentimes when we talk about language, especially if it's a foreign language, a lot of this stuff is 
Anglicanized. So in other words, somebody's name like Henry, which would be spelled with a Y, is an I in French and pronounced Henri. it. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not going to try it because then I'll just, uh, yeah. But but no, it's so it's part of the difficulty sometimes when you're pronouncing some of these names. But that, not to excuse my awful pronunciations, I do try to get on like YouTube and listen to pronunciations of each one and then immediately turn around and screw it up. But yeah, you know. It's when you mispronounce things in the actual English language. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. So You're welcome. Appreciate it. All right. So another question we got was, quote, you guys seem to do a lot of darker material, which I like. A lot of it is much older than what other podcasts cover and more expansive. I noticed that there seems to be more violence in older history, like Romans and your most recent Persian episode. Why is that? Thanks and love your show. So, like, that's a good question. First, I'm not sure if it was more violent or not. That's actually debated a lot in history. It certainly seems like societally it was more violent. I think a lot of how violence um, and violent executions, the public spectacle of those executions, that's not stuff that we would consider acceptable today in today's modern world. So it seems that there, there's certainly, when you, especially when you talk about like the Romans and the Persians, violence was much more everyday for them because of the public spectacle of violence being entertainment, of being a religious ceremony. We can look at places like the Aztecs, Mayans, Incans, and other uh, civilizations that do any sort of human sacrifice. So there is that element there, but I don't know if like individually it changed at all. Yeah, and... I'm honestly not sure either. I'm kind of right there with you. I do think that there's more bloodied accounts in history. I mean, obviously, when you read in the history textbooks or even when you look through and see some of the pictures, you know, even of like the revolution, revolutionary war and things, you certainly see things painted in a much more violent way. And do you think that's because people gravitate towards violence? I just think that possibly it was more of a way of life, sort of what you pointed out that, you know, for instance, there's certainly a much more back when public executions were more of a thing. I feel like there was a sense of justice that came from that. Like if you betrayed the king, if you, you know, the leader of your country, it was kind of seen as like justice, kind of you get what you deserve. So I'm not really sure if it's more violent or if necessarily maybe it's kind of just painted more that way, even in like a poetic style. Like, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think violence as an acceptable method is probably why we think of it that way. Although you do bring up a good point that it was more every day. I think of, I've been reading a little bit of Robin Hood, which sounds kind of funny, but the Merry Band of Thieves was not so merry back in the day. There were bands that were roaming around the, uh, what we would call the Wasted Commons in England. And it was just kind of known that if you left your village, there's a good chance that bandits might come across you. Highwaymen might come across you. They might accost you or worse. And so there, I think that the fear of violence was certainly there because there was a real prevalence of violence. But when I think of individualistic, I mean, oftentimes we look at something like what Gilda Ray did or somebody like Elizabeth Bathory did. And we go, wow, that's really awful. But 
you can find cases like that today, can't you? A very violent, uh, gruesome, messed up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one that I see on Reddit all the times is cited is the transcript that people can't read through is um, the toolbox killers and the script that they would read to their victims before they would mutilate and torture them. Um, they certainly kept, you know, like a, a toolbox, basically a murder kit. And what year and was that? I'm not sure on the year, to be honest, but it was definitely more, you know, recent times. Like, I don't even want to estimate what it was or botch it, but maybe past 30 like, years, 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly yeah. like within the past 50 years. But um, so, yeah. And I think there's always been an interest and it would be interesting to know if those types of things are just more documented the same way they are documented in our culture currently where, you know, how many news articles do you read about? the good things that people did and how many do you read about the bombings in Syria or things that are more violent in nature because that's just what's interesting for people to read. No, and and, and that brings up a point that that's something that's always been there, that sort of sensationalized account of violence. I mean, you if you go back, you know, 200 years, 300 years and look at their newspapers, it's the same way. They're, they're reporting on the public executions. They're reporting on, oh, there is a murder in this village. Those are the things that people were interested then. So I think it's more of just uh, violence is oftentimes what we write in the history. That means that it's kind of difficult, though, because the only way that you can study history oftentimes is archaeological records and then written records. And if it's written records are all about violence, you can't really tell very well how violent that society was. But yeah. all this to say, it's all conjecture, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, you even have accounts of, um, I believe in a criminal episode, they talk about how sometimes when there was a murder that occurred in like a village, they would, um, it would be like a town spectacle and they would actually pay to like walk through the scene with the blood and guts still everywhere. And it was kind of just like oh, yeah, something common. something that people were interested in understanding. So I'm just not sure if that's our human nature or something that we just see printed more that catches our eye. Our next question comes from a listener. I listened to The Rice Chest and Evilest Man in the World and was hooked. Both of them seem to have had some sort of mental issues. Speaking, I think, about the, the people in there. How do historians go about diagnosing historical figures with mental illness. Thanks. Well, uh, I don't know about diagnosing. Uh, Katie, since you do a lot of work in psychology, you would know a little more about how do you even go about diagnosing somebody with mental illness today? Right. So um, disclaimer, I'm not like a diagnosing psychologist or anything. I will be finishing a master's in applied psychology in December. So I just have a lot of like research background in this particular topic. A lot of it is gathering information from the patient on symptoms and things like that. And we use the diagnostical and statistical manual as kind of a basis and a guideline for meeting specific criteria. And That's the DSM, right? Yeah. And if you don't know what the DSM is, it's basically a giant manual that details all the different types of recognized um, mental disorders currently. So you do have to meet criteria in order to be diagnosed. And in recent years, they've kind of changed the way they do those. Um, before, there used to be like an axis diagnosis. So there was like five axis E. Was it axi? <laughs> I'm not sure how you say that. <laughs> there was five different axes axes that you would use um and so it took into account things like any physical illness that you have like so say you're diagnosed with depression but you also have a diagnosis of diabetes um and then it also took into account your 
what they used to call a GAF score. But the DSM has changed over time, right? Yeah. Because this is the fifth edition now. Yep. So this is kind of where it comes back to. So, I mean, there's stuff in the DSM that used to be there, like homosexuality as a mental illness, that's yeah. no longer there. So I think part of what makes it difficult is, well, can we even apply the DSM standards to history? Right. I'm not really sure if we can or not, but I think that we're still able to look at patterns of behavior and kind of understand if there was something going on that could be mental, like with the rice chest. I know a lot of people on Reddit mentioned things that he had some OCD tendencies. So um, yeah, while there may not be like an actual ability to diagnose, I think there's a way to make an argument that someone is exhibiting symptoms that we now recognize as a disorder. Right. It's a little difficult because um, from the historian's perspective, historians are very wary of diagnosing individuals with anything medical or psychological because we're not psychologists or in medicine. And like you said, you can't really ask a patient directly when they're dead what their thoughts are. But what we can do is look at the patterns of behaviors, the patterns of stressors, and we can try to get as close as we can. So I, I'm a little biased here, but since a lot of my graduate research has to do with trying to touch into those psychological and sociological traits in history, but it is something that we just have to be extremely wary of. So while we might say we have a 90% likelihood that Crown Prince Sato had a mental illness, we're not going to say, oh yeah, it totally is a mental illness. It just exhibits these tendencies. Right. And another thing is, you know, I feel like we would definitely want to base things on like firsthand accounts from the person, taking into account what the family is recognizing as symptoms you know, things can get washed in writing, so they're not always accurate. I just think it's important to under you know, look back at journals if they exist to kind of gauge maybe someone's mental status at the time. Another common question we received was about our cats, since we do post quite often about them. So they want to know what kind of cats are they? Do they scream like banshees at you or are they quiet? <laughs> what kind of music do they like? Are they furry little bastards who like to walk where they're not supposed to and love knocking things into the floor at three in the morning because they want to walk all over your computer? And finally, will there be a podcast episode about cats in history? If we do one on cats in history, I'm going to let you be the one who takes the reins on that. I don't know. Cat criminals. <laughs> cat burglars. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. Podcast title right there. So to answer the first question, what kind of cats are they? So we have three cats. Our first cat is Rosie. She is a... Who the hell knows what she is, to be honest? <laughs> she's a she's, mutt. She's a mutt, but I guess um, I can't think of the freaking word right now. Long-haired? Oh, she's a... Um, all of our cats have some type of tabby in them. And so Rosie is a long-haired tabby. Um, she's got green eyes. She's really, really furry. So um, When it comes to the scream like Banshee, that one is Rosie, though. Yeah. Rosie is our one that screams like a Banshee pretty much any time she's not excited. Other fun <laughs> fact is she doesn't have any teeth because she had an autoimmune disease that caused her teeth um, to attack themselves, basically. So that's Rosie, and then our second cat is Astrid, and she's also a tabby, but she's mixed with Siamese. Um, we kind of call her Trevor's cat because she's usually seen on his lap, 
If he's not there, she is in his chair. She's very, very smart. Uh, she's a point lynx, which is a so it's very white with blue eyes. And then our most recent one is Oliver, <laughs> aka Ollie. And she definitely fits into the last part of the question. Are they furry little bastards who like to walk where they're not supposed to? Because this cat has literally no manners. She always walks across our computer. She always is, you know. Well, in fairness, she's a kitten. Yeah, she is a kitten. So she's got a pass there. But. Well, what happened was uh, she was she got thrown out of a moving vehicle and some friends rescued her. And so uh, we picked her up and she's kind of acclimated in. But yeah, it's certainly thrown a wrench in things because she's she's um, at, the, at that stage where she's learned to uh, climb legs and knock things over, which sucks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Another question we wanted to address was why does the podcast stop at 1918? And I'm definitely going to turn this one over to Trevor. <laughs> is that because I was the one who set that in the first place? Yes. <laughs> so 1918, when we started the podcast, it was 2018. And 1918 made sense for two reasons at the time. The first one was that it was 100 years exactly, 2018, 1918. And we use that as a sort of stopping point because I feel like a lot of true crime tends to cover the past 100 years or even the ones that are like oh yeah we're true crime history they they cover oftentimes something that's like the 19th century to and through like maybe the 1950s so we wanted to avoid that and then um (laughs) was there something and i don't know because i'm not as versed in history about 1918 kind of being the end of modern times or the beginning of modern times yes no that's true it's true it's the end of world war one the treaty of versailles oftentimes looked at is like that's the end of what we call the modern age and then we end up in the postmodern age this is a question that we get quite often about primary primary sources primary. that we post or use in our podcast, and they're all similar, but I'll use this one from a commenter who asked after a post, historically, is this the accepted story today? Yeah, we get that a lot with pretty much anything that we do. Uh, somebody asks, well, is this the correct source, or is this source biased, or is it accepted today? We get that a lot, and and it's fair. So hopefully this won't blow your mind, but historian is written by humans, and humans oftentimes write their own inherent biases into it. And Shocking. <laughs> thanks. And also, it's, it's not surprising that historians also, when they are looking at evidence, they have to oftentimes interpret that evidence. And so just simply the choosing of what eyewitnesses to to put into their, their writings, the the choice of of what um, of their own sources that they find to leave in or take out means that oftentimes they have an interpretation. And then a bunch of historians of a time period will oftentimes have similar interpretations all at the same time. So like if you've ever read like super old history, we're talking 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, oftentimes uh, historians who are writing during that time, which oftentimes are the very same people who are living through it, people like John Bunyan and the Pilgrims, They're writing oftentimes thinking of history as a sort of like the history from God's perspective. And so they oftentimes write like, oh, yes, we're doing God's work, God's glory. Uh, All of this is providence. And so this providential history comes out a lot. Obviously, most historians don't agree with that today. We're not going to be like, oh, yes, this happened because God had it thus be so. So there's an obvious case that oftentimes 
uh, the the story will change uh, depending on the time period that you're looking at. The actual facts might not, but which facts we, we choose to focus on will. All that to say, so when I pull from some of our sources, I'm typically either pulling from a very old primary source and then giving it my own interpretation, or I'm pulling from more recent sources that would have, uh, I guess, closer interpretations to what historians say today. But it's kind of weird because I know that, and I always mention this to people, that in 50 years, 100 years, people are going to be looking back at what historians are writing and going like, wow, they got it really wrong, because that's just simply what happens. Yeah, the um, and piping in on the psychology part, it's the same thing with psychology. I mean, until there were ethics boards developed, there's so many things that we kind of like to like push out of our history of psychology, like lobotomies and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Things change and we learn new things. And that's kind of the beauty of continuing to learn and research is that just because something might change 50 years down the line doesn't mean that we didn't know the, what we knew back then. All right, now hang tight for this one because the question itself is a little bit wordy. Do you know anything about jingoism during the Manifest Destiny period of U.S. history around the time of the war against the Spanish, the invasion of the Philippines, etc.? I swear, I at one point read a historical account of someone actually being shot at a ball game for refusing to stand for the pledge. But when I attempted to read through the book again to find that, I could not. You seem to do a significant degree of research, and I was hoping maybe you might know something similar to this occurring. This has been driving me up a wall lately. I'm not sure if I fabricated the memory or am wildly misremembering some detail. No, so that's a good question. So first, um, for those who don't know what jingoism is, jingoism was a half-political half sociological idea that existed pretty much only for this very short time span in the 1890s America in which people were extremely patriotic and and very interested in imperialism and taking over other countries uh, for their resources. And jingoism has there's a there's a lot of possibilities for why it occurred. I've seen everything from just the the politics at the time and how the parties had been formed to even people talking about how masculinity was changing and what people thought about masculinity and the idea of like going over and starting a war was considered masculine. So a lot of different ideas. So I actually looked for this particular case. I couldn't find it myself, which I was a little surprised because when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, I think I remember that too. But it was a false memory. And that's actually something that I think is interesting about history is this idea of false memory. So... For Katie, psychologist, what is a false memory? So a false memory is something that we believe to be true that happened, either something that we read, we watched, we heard, we saw. Um, and many of us think that our memories are extremely reliable, but um, there have been many, many experiments to show that that is not the case. For instance, doing simple experiments where a participant is given a list of words and then asked, okay, did this word appear in the list? And many of them will swear, oh yeah, this, this word was part of the original list. And, you know, come to find out the researcher reveals that that's not the case. Um, and there's many reasons why this happens, but simply sometimes our memories just aren't encoded and that can be impacted by many things like distractions. With this case, I don't think it really applies, but something like weapon focus is often talked a lot about where if an eyewitness is asked to recount a experience, if there was a weapon involved, they may not be able to recount 
any other details because their focus was on he had a gun or a knife or something like that. So yeah, there's a lot of factors that can impact false memory and certainly something that occurs and probably occurs more often than many of us like to admit. Yeah, and coming from the from history, it's kind of weird because when you think about it, almost everything that we write down in history, if it's not some sort of census records or something like that, is somebody's eyewitness account, which is often based on memory. And so it's it's a little weird to say, like, memory's unreliable. By the way, most of written human history is memory, so it's not reliable either, but it is a little bit true. And oftentimes when we, we read an account, we do have to take that piece into effect. We also have to take into effect whether they're exaggerating on purpose or, like you said, like a weapon focus, like on accident. They're, they're, they're remembering something that maybe necessarily isn't true, or if they remember that thing, they don't remember what's going on around it as well. And so those parts are the ones that, that get foggy. And so it's, it's kind of weird, though, to think of history that way, that history could be one big false memory. Right. It's definitely really interesting. And even thinking about things that can taint our memories, leading questions, if you're asked something right after an event happened, but you're asked it in a leading way, you might interpret like, oh, yeah, maybe I did see a man in a red hat at the you know gas station with a gun even though you didn't see even though you didn't see that or it was a blue hat like there's very small details that can sometimes seem not very important but we know there's many of many convictions out there that are based specifically only on an eyewitness testimony and is proved later to be false with dna evidence just because someone identified yeah that's the person in the blue hat that robbed the store so not to say that we should never trust history but it does mean that oftentimes the only way to get a good historical account is to read from multiple sources and if they're all saying similar things and they're in and they they're all eyewitness to the event that's when in history we could we could say that something is undeniably true now the difficulty is is that oftentimes the older you go in history the less sources you get because the less is written down and the less is is saved and so it, oftentimes when we talk about like the, our, our Persian episode stuff though there's probably maybe a half dozen to a dozen good sources about any of that it makes it difficult because if those sources are are all pulling from the same same unreliable accounts then the whole account is unreliable so at the end of the day it does make history a little bit more difficult Okay, so wrapping up this Q&A, we would just like to address one question, which is what are our plans after this? What's next? Well, uh, so truth be told, when we started this podcast, I had written pretty much with the idea of like, oh yeah, I could do this for a year or two and then just kind of keep it in the wild. But at this point, I'd like to keep it running and going. So for sure, for the next year, you're going to continue to get more episodes. I'm not going to be quitting anytime soon. Uh, I think we've talked a little bit about trying to figure out a way to give you guys additional content because we know that once every two weeks is not, not the quickest turnaround. And unfortunately, with both of us in full-time jobs, both of us in grad school, it does make it difficult. So we're going to see about trying to get more content out. I don't know if that'll be a premium content. I don't know if it will even be very similar to what we're doing right now. But hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll have some, some idea for you. All right, final question. Even though we said the last one was the final question. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> uh, what historical character would you bring to a bar fight? You go first. Uh, the one I've thought about, I hear a lot of people do. Teddy Roosevelt is really good, but I think I would go with one that we've done, John Hawkwood, because the guy could talk himself out of anything. I'd, I'd like somebody who could like 
talk uh, basically mal reynolds from from firefly that's what i want oh okay that's good that's good um so trevor just posed this question to me about five seconds ago (laughs) but um my initial thought was annie oakley because she was a complete and total badass (laughs) and an ohioan oh yeah she was an ohioan go bucks also the fact that she would shoot riding side saddle in her freaking skirt like that yeah i don't think she'd be afraid she did the penny thing too did you know that one of the very first film clips ever was actually of annie oakley yeah shooting it yeah so all right so we'll be back to our normal episodes uh in two weeks if you enjoy this episode rate and review us on itunes High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. 